Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 75. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. We're having a fantastic week here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters, as we seem to always be having a great week. But this is the greatest job in the world. I get to talk to the greatest drummers on planet Earth about drumming and drums and music How could anybody have a bad week when you're doing that all the time? Have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm going to be joined by a Nashville legend. Mr. Rodney Edmondson is going to be on here in just a moment after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by the great Rodney Edmondson. Um, Rodney has just had a fantastic career in the Nashville music scene. He was a member of the Whites and played the Grand Ole Opry literally dozens upon dozens of times and, and toured most of the country with that fantastic, uh, you know, traditional family group uh, for about five years. Uh, but Rodney's going to be most recognizable uh, from his work with the great Ronnie Millsap. Rodney has been manning the the drum throne for Ronnie for 27 years now. And uh, Rodney and I just have so many friends and acquaintances in common. Um, it's unbelievable that I've never met him in person, to, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, I reached out to Rodney through social media uh, and asked him to come on. And he said he was surprised to be asked. I am not. Um, this is just a fantastic interview. And Rodney offers so much great uh, insight into his career and what it takes to make it in Nashville. And you'd be hard pressed to find a nicer guy on planet Earth. Uh, so us two Southern boys got together uh, and talked for about an hour about his legendary career. So I hope you guys really enjoy it. Uh, help me welcome to the drum shuffle, the great Rodney Edmondson. Good evening, Rodney. How's it going, man? It is going great, Jamie. Awesome. Glad to be here with you. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to do it. Uh, I know that you just did uh, a show up my way that unfortunately I couldn't make it to. How did uh, how did Kentucky treat you over the weekend? Oh, they're always great. We've we've done the uh, the Renfro Valley uh, Theater there a number of times, and and uh, they they always seem to have a soft spot for Ronnie up there. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a great room. And, you know, what's cool about Renfro Valley, uh, for, for the listeners that don't know, Renfro Valley is 
um, just outside of a little town called Mount Vernon in southern Kentucky on I-75. And they are, would you, would you say it's kind of like they're, they're trying to do a mini Grand Ole Opry in Southern Kentucky? Would that be an accurate assessment? I, um, I guess so. Um, I know that, uh, we've never done like a, an Opry style performance there, but you know, they, they've been there for decades. I, I think if I'm not mistaken, they had a sign up that they were celebrating, like 60 years or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And what's really cool about it is you you catch um, some folks out of Knoxville to the south and you're only a couple of hours from Cincinnati. So it's really it's a good place to play if, you know, if your routing takes you through there It and, and they always have a great crowd. And it's it's a lot of fun to see a show there, I think. Well, it's a, it's a nice sounding room, uh, and it's, you know, it's not too big and, and, uh, the crew there that, that loads you in and out and helps is, is really good. And, uh, it's just, it's really easy to do. And like I said, the, uh, the people always turn out for Ronnie and, and we have a great show there. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you had a good time. And next time you guys get through this way, I'm going to have to come out and see, you. I, I was, I was indisposed this weekend. So sorry, I missed you while you were so close to me, but, um, Rodney, traditionally what we do here on the drum shuffle is, is we start at the beginning. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and how you got into music to begin with for, for all of our listeners. Well, I grew up in a little little town on the east coast of Virginia called Seaford, which is uh, near Yorktown, Virginia, uh, part of what they call the historic triangle of uh, Yorktown and uh, Williamsburg and Jamestown. Yeah. But um, I don't know when I was when I was little, uh, my dad would bring me uh, forty five records home. Every once in a while, he he would buy one for me, and and he would pick me up an Elvis forty five or something like that, and and uh, he brought me home a Little Richard single. Oh man! And uh, I was done at that point. <laughs> I think I might have been four years old, uh, but I just knew that that's what I wanted to do, and uh, was was being music uh, somehow. But um, I just always loved you know that rock and roll sound that. Uh, that little Richard had, but then some years later, uh, I have a, a cousin that was five years older than me that started playing drums and I thought he was the coolest thing that ever was. And I wanted to be just like him and, and he was playing drums. So, uh, as soon as I could, I guess it was fifth grade. Uh, I started in the school band program in elementary school. Okay. Um, and stuck with, you know, just started doing that and, and, uh, um, of course wanted to play drum set. I couldn't get a whole drum set. So I, I cut grass one summer and, uh, saved up some money and, and my dad kicked in some money and got me a snare drum, a Ludwig super classic. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I had was a snare drum. And then, you know, later on I added a ride cymbal and then a, a bass drum. And so it just kept building from there. Um, and, um, I had a band director in, in eighth grade that thought I had something that, um, you know, I needed private lessons. He thought I, I had some ability that, um, a private teacher would help. And, uh, so I, I took some private lessons and just, you know, went through the whole school band program all the way up through high school, did marching band and, um, taught myself on drum set. I never did a, a drum set teacher, but um, did the school musicals, you know, played in the pit orchestra. Sure. Uh, we, we had garage bands that I played in and, um, there was a, a popular uh, country singer in that area that, um, he would often use, uh, me and the bass player and the guitar player out of the jazz ensemble to play country music with him at some of the local American legions and, and things like that. So, um, I was out in places that I probably shouldn't have been in, but um, <laughs> it was uh, a great experience. But also one thing that I did in 10th grade was I, I joined the um, Clooney Williamsburg Fife and Drum Corps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that was that was a great experience for the three years that I did that. Um, 
but that was, you know, in a nutshell, that was just, I just wanted to play and I played everything I could possibly do. Uh, you know, everything in the school band and did, uh, you know, the regional band and all Virginia band and things like that. And had intended to go to college for four years and, and get a, uh, a teaching degree. My band director in high school, uh, was, was just fantastic. And, and, uh, I thought I wanted to be, you know, do what he did. And uh, I went to a Shenandoah Conservatory of Music for a year. And uh, and I'm glad I went, but I figured out quickly that being a band director is not really what I wanted to do. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think that path, you know, first of all, doing, you know, pipe and drum, you know, you, your chops just build and build and build when you're, you know, when you're in that setting and marching band, you get the chops. But it sounds like you were out gigging at an early age, too. So you kind of did the bug bite you pretty hard from those early, you know, as you said, American Legion kind of gigs? Oh, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to do. I guess the first time I played for uh, for any, you know, what I would consider real money uh, was a little um, two guitar, bass, drums, girl singer, you know, rock band that all the guys in the band were, were 17 and 18. And my second cousin was the girl that was singing in the band. And, and she got me on board uh, and I was 15. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, they had some gigs in the summertime at this uh, campground um, that that I would play, you know, and make like 20 or 25 bucks, which was a huge amount of money. That's, that's, uh, that's not too far from lower broad minimums these days. But, uh, <laughs> which well, yeah, yeah don't, not true. That's not, you know, just making a joke there, but, uh, yeah, don't get yeah, me started, was, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, uh, yeah, I started playing, uh, playing gigs, you know, when I was uh, 15 and, um, just, I just played all the time. That's what I wanted to do. Well, so after, you know, after your, your year in college and you said, you know, I realized that, that I wasn't going to, you know, become a, a band director. That wasn't what I really wanted to do. Did you, did you stay in Virginia for a while or was this pretty close to the time you made the move over to Nashville? No, I stayed in Virginia. I went back home, um, Kicked around in some bands. I, I worked um, a construction job for about a year and a half, um, and um, and you know played in some bands. I was uh, teaching some private lessons, a few private lessons. Then I got contacted about doing that, and um, um, just just playing in the local cover bands. And after a few years. Um, I, at one of the, uh, this one particular band I was in, uh, I met who, um, a, a girl that ended up being my wife later on. And, uh, we are still married 40 years later. Ah, oh, congratulations. Hello. Yeah, I I just said congratulations. I mean, that's okay. That, that's, got cut off there for a second. That, that's a, a a great testament to a good relationship. If any woman will put up with a touring drummer for forty years, she must be well, saint like. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I couldn't have done it without her. Um, but the uh, we got married and and I was playing in a band in Richmond, Virginia, at the time, and we moved up there. And, um, as bands do, they, they had been a well-established band and I came in on the tail end of it. And, um, I, we, we lived in Richmond a little over two years and, and that band broke up and, um, uh, kicked around on a couple of different day jobs and, and, uh, played, uh, played with a local guy there named Steve Bassett, who's had some regional success for many years in that area. Um, played with him some and, and then, uh, it is, we, we had decided to make the move to Nashville. She, Judy said, you know, look, if you're going to play music, we should really move somewhere where it's a business. I mean, this was her idea. And at that time we had, you had New York, uh, Nashville and Los Angeles. Yeah. And, uh, I wasn't going to Los Angeles and, and I wasn't, um, um, I wasn't confident about going to New York and, uh, and doing that. 
And so we decided to move to Nashville. And it was kind of funny that um, when we decided we were going to do that, the guy back home that I used to play the American Legion halls with and stuff, he was the band leader of this little family theater in Matthews, Virginia. It was called Donk's Theater. And he convinced me to come be the drummer in that thing for a year before I went out to Nashville because once a month, they would bring a, a like a newly signed um, artist from Nashville out. You know, they didn't have their own band or anything like that and would be the feature act at the show there. Uh, he was and, trying to get you in front of those folks. That's that's cool. Yeah, and, and hopefully make some contacts. And uh, so I, I committed to do that for a year. And what was funny is that the, the last artist that I worked with uh, there was uh, Lori Morgan. Oh, yeah, sure. And uh, I, I was talking to her, you know, said so we were getting ready to move out there and everything like that. And, and uh, at that time, she was married to uh, a guy named Ron Gaddis, who was a, a bass player here in town. And he was working down at Printer's Alley. And uh, she said um, they were in the process of getting a divorce, but <laughs> she said that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, she says, I'll call Ron and tell him you're coming to town and to expect you to come in there and to let you sit in with the band. Oh, that's cool. And, and she was good on her word because when I that was the first place I went to when I got to town was down to the Western Room in Printer's Alley. And, uh, and Ron got me up to play, um, you know, about 15 minutes with the band, which was really cool. So I got to meet those guys and. Uh, it it took a you know a while to to get something shaken in town, but was, you know Lower Broad didn't exist back then. Right. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a different time for sure. And you know, I guess when you got to town, it was still kind of the the era of you know. I, first of all, you had to know somebody, I guess. You know, but it was open cattle calls for the most part, right? There were. Um, I joined the union right away. And you would see postings for, you know, uh, an audition occasionally. It it seemed, you know, like these days, um, if, if somebody's looking for a player, everybody in the band has somebody that they know. Yeah. And, and auditions are usually, you know, kind of a, if there are any, it's kind of a closed off deal. Nobody hears about it unless, you know, you know those guys. Right. Uh, or girls. And uh, you get a call for something like that. But you could hear about cattle call auditions um, back then. And uh, I did a few of them and ended up, you know, getting a gig with a band, not with an artist, but uh, with a band. And um, that kind of got me started here in town. Yeah. Well, it's just people ask me all the time they're, they're like you know what does it take to make it you know in in nashville or la or whatever like like i would know <laughs> you know i mean i still live in central kentucky you know but but i i do have some folks that'll say you know how hard is it and the, without fail what i always tell them is go into any applebee's or you know i don't know oh charlie's in nashville order a cheeseburger the guy or girl that brings it to you is probably the best guitarist bass player or vocalist you've never heard of i mean it right. the, the town is full of talent you can throw a rock and hit a world class grade a player within arm shot of you wherever you stand in Nashville was it that way when you got to town I'm sure it was well I think so um I, I think it's much more so now so many more people have come here um but one of the things that I did when I first came to town was I cold called uh, Kenny Malone <laughs> <laughs> you know, who was a you know a team session player yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he couldn't have been nicer. You know, he said, Hey, let's meet for breakfast, you know? And, and, and he gave me the, the advice that, you know, it's, it's common sense, but that, that I've given everybody that's ever asked. And he said, go and sit in with as many people that will let you sit in, Yeah, you know, and you just have to network, which was more face to face back then because the, you know, there wasn't internet or, 
anything like that. So you had to go physically down there and meet these people, and hopefully they would let you sit in and and you know you would start your networking that way. And uh, uh, and Kenny even he later on he called me. He had a session he was going to do and wanted to know if I wanted to come and watch, you know, and, and learn. Wow. That's and, cool. Uh, that's, that's super nice. Yeah. So I went down to CBS studios and, uh, Billy Sherrill was producing, uh, it was George Jones and Merle Haggard duet oh, album. God, wow. And, uh, Kenny got me a seat in the drum booth and he had Billy, he asked, um, he asked the engineer, would you set, uh, Rodney up a, a separate head, you know, a headphone mix so he can sit in here and, and, you know, watch and listen as it's going down. And they said, sure, no problem. So I sat in the booth with him while he was playing tracks for this George Jones, Merle Haggard project. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I mean, you know, you, did it occur to you at that time? I mean, I'm sure you were just like, man, I, I just, I'm a sponge trying to soak up as much as I can, but did it occur to you that I'm witnessing history right here? Well, yeah, I had played enough country music to know what was happening there. Okay. And, uh, um, it, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, and of course it was just all 18 players in there and they, and they, they couldn't have been nicer. Well, that's, I, you know, I mean, what an experience, you know, a, a, a guy that's new to town and getting to have that experience. That's, I mean, that's pretty much incredible. Now, you know, we talked kind of before we started the interview, but, you know, you were a rock guy growing up. So was it, you know, was it alien to you? I, I know you said I had played enough country music, but was it, was it like a different language when you were in there with the A-team, you know, watching them cut a, a big country record? Well, I'd never um, been in a room with that many high-caliber players, you know, to watch. Uh, it was my f- introduction to the Nashville number system. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, you know, to watch these guys, you know, listen to something and, and, and write these numbers down. And in about two or three passes, they had something that sounded like a hit record. <laughs> of course. Um. And I was going, you know, okay, this is a whole nother level right here. I know it's country music and everybody says, oh, this is easy. And, but it's not, um, because those guys, you know, they have so much more in the bag that they can do, but, um, you know, they're, they're playing this traditional country music, you know, better than anybody can do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well, and time is money in the studio, especially if you're, you said you were at CBS. I mean, they're, they're paying a lot of money to have that room. So, right. you, you know, they, they got to get it knocked out pretty quick. So it was, it was a, yeah, it was a, a fun day and a, a real, you know, great learning experience. Well, so, you know, once you're in town and you're, you're doing the networking thing, talk to me a little bit about your, you know, your first, you know, good paying gig. Um, you know, I, I know who it is, but I, I'll, I'll let you tell the story, but talk to us about your first break once you, uh, you know, kind of broke into the scene in Nashville. Well, it, uh, well, I did a lot of, uh, several different bands, um, that uh, a couple of them almost broke. You know, we we had a couple of opportunities that didn't pan out, but um, I played in this one band uh, for, I don't know, about a year or so, for about a year, year and a half, something like that. And it was called Quick Change, and I don't want to say it was my my first great-paying gig, but it is the first time I ever played with a band that I got paid more than a hundred dollars for one day. <laughs> okay. That's that counts then, right? <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that was kind of special. And, uh, one of the things about that band though, was, uh, the lead singer of the band was Tim Nichols. Who's one of the, he's a hall of fame songwriter. Oh, now. Yeah, sure. Um, he was the, he was in that band and we were, you know, beating the roads to death in a trailer and, a uh, in a van. And, um, but that band, we would, we would play clubs on our own. You know, we would play the five night gigs somewhere, uh, just as a club band. But the agency they were tied in with booked some, uh, some Opry acts that weren't, that didn't carry a band anymore. So 
we may get a call and on Friday and Saturday night we would be Billy Walker's band. Oh, cool. Or or we might be Jan Howard's band. Yeah. Or we might be Sheb Woolley's band. Uh, you know, and things like that. So it was it was interesting to get to play and back up some of the uh the older uh, Opry artists and and things like that and playing with uh Sheb Woolley was a was just a blast. Um I don't know if you're familiar much with him, but um, Sheb had a, a a hit record back in the day called "The Purple People Eater." Oh yeah, sure. And uh, but he was also an actor. He was uh, he was on the Rawhide series, and um, he had done a lot of lot of great things. So that was that was fun uh, working with him. But that band that was the first time i'd ever like i said made a hundred i made 125 dollars whenever we would back <laughs> up those artists <laughs> well that's good money man i mean that's even today that's that's pretty decent money depending on your gig well i thought it was pretty great back then but um you know there was a couple more bands after that i did get back into playing rock music here in town with a guy named jeff allen and uh there was a, a thriving uh, club scene here in town then that that had the top 40 rock bands and and uh our band with with jeff allen was was really good and um i did that but that's when i went from playing rock music to playing the most traditional country i'd ever played being with the whites yeah well and you know the the interesting thing about the whites you know it's kind of a a, a family affair you know that 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 had to be a little bit of culture shock for you. Talk to me about that. Well, going from what I was doing uh, with the Jeff Allen band, because we, boy, we were loud. Uh, <laughs> and I know we didn't have, we didn't corner the market on that. I mean, a lot of people played loud, but we, we played loud. And um, um, how I got in, got the White's job was that uh, Rosie White uh, used to come out and hear our band all the time. And, uh, she would, she kept telling me that, uh, the white's drummer was leaving if I was interested in doing it, you know, and I, so I don't know, I'm having a lot of fun playing this rock band thing. And, and after a, a couple of months of it, it, I don't know, it just became apparent that I think the rock, the, the Jeff Allen thing was going to phase out and I probably should move on to do something else. And so when, uh, I told Rosie, I'd be interested in auditioning. And, uh, so she got me some music to listen to and, uh, went over to, I think it was SIR and, um, bought, you know, loaded up on brushes and plastics and got my, you know, soup stirring in order and, and all of that kind of stuff and, and went into the audition and, um, Buck and, and Sharon and Cheryl talked about it for a few minutes and Buck came over and he said, well, the job's yours if you want it. Wow. And, and so I took the job and, and, um, it, um, on a weekly basis, it actually paid a little less than the rock band did. Um, they, they had a salary structure, um, uh, but they had a, uh, uh, um, a retainer that they pl- that they paid if they didn't go out of town. I see. And, uh, so it was, um, uh, but they were members of the Opry. That was one of the big things. And they played the Opry every time the doors were open if we weren't out of town. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, and, and that had to be, you know, just, just really cool for you. I mean, I, I, I can't even put into words, but you know, it, it, it had to be a huge learning experience. Well, yes, it was. It was, uh, uh, of course, you know, I was very nervous the first time I did it. I didn't know anything about it, uh, what was going to happen or anything like that. And uh, uh, I remember Harold Weekly was the uh, one of the staff drummers at the time. And he said, he says, uh, well, Rodney, are you nervous? I said, well, yeah, a little bit. And he says, well, you ought to be. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> um. So yeah, I, yeah, I was with the Whites for five years, and uh, I played the Opry literally hundreds of times with them. And um, I guess I take it for granted sometimes because you know so many people want to play it and never get a chance to. And and I've had so many opportunities to play it, 
um, but it, it's always a, a, a real privilege to be there. Yeah. I, I mean, I can only imagine it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, the Super Bowl and a presidential inauguration rolled into <laughs> one, you know, I mean, as far as that music is concerned, it doesn't, there's no, no bigger stage anywhere than the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. And it had, um, I don't know, I guess it was kind of at the, what I considered, you know, what the, uh, the Opry was for a lot of older artists was, a launching pad for their career if they got invited to play on the Opry because there was no TV right? and they were a clear channel station and the Opry would, would reach so many small towns and people would hear about a new artist for the first time on the Opry. And, you know, they, they would get booked on a, on a show with other Opry artists and, and hit the road like that. And then people would want to come see, this person that they heard on the radio. And by the time I started playing the Opry with the whites, the national network was in full swing and people would get introduced to new artists, um, on the live portion of the Opry sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 case in point, you know, I mean, it, it really was a launching pad for, hundreds and hundreds of artists, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just huge. Um, now in the five years that you were out, you know, on the road with the whites, did you, I, I mean, presumably you saw the entire country. I mean, they, they worked pretty hard during that time, didn't they? Uh, when I first got with them, um, they never did beat the road to death real hard. I want to say we were maybe doing, you know, 60 or 70 shows a uh, year. Okay. Uh, not that much. And then, uh, probably the last couple of years I was with them, we were only doing about 30 or 40 shows a year, but we were, like I said, playing the, playing the Opry every time the doors were open that we weren't out of town. Yeah. So, so you were staying pretty busy during that time then. Yeah. I mean, I was busy doing that. I would, um, uh, had a couple of guys that I would sup with around town and, and different clubs when I could. And, um, and something else that I've done for nearly the, the whole time that I've been in town is I've worked a day job. It wasn't my intention, but it just, it worked out that way. And, uh, and I still do even, even when I was out with Ronnie, uh, in the beginning, you know, doing 125 to 150 shows a year. Um, I, I work for this sound company here in Nashville. Well, it, which, you know, I think it, that's a testament to your, you know, to your work ethic, first of all, because it's, man, it's really hard to juggle a day gig and tour, you know, I mean, and I speak from experience there, you know, I've always had a day job as well, you know, no, no matter what. Um, so that's kind of interesting to me because when you first started playing with, with, Ronnie Millsap, I mean, he was a whole lot more busy at that time. And we were talking earlier, you're what, 27 years in playing yeah. with Ronnie. So, I mean, when you first got with him, you know, as you said, he was doing, you know, north of a hundred shows a year. You must have, you know, a, a really good and understanding uh, supervisor and, and being in Nashville, it's kind of assumed that if you're, touring they're, they're going to give you some leeway there but that's pretty amazing really well i i was very fortunate um what i do for the company is i build all of their road cases and um uh, but uh ken porter that owns spectrum sound is uh you know i just i was just been very fortunate to have had him as a boss you know because i was playing with the whites when i first started working for him and um and he's just been understanding that way. And I've been treated as a full-time employee the whole time that I've been there, which will be this coming January will be 30 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I, we could do a whole episode on the evolution of touring road cases over your career. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've built a bunch of them. I can only imagine. So, so your handiwork has been around the world probably 7,000 times in 30, oh, yeah. 30 yeah. years. That's crazy. Uh, I, I did not realize that's what you did. I need a good snare vault. Maybe, maybe we can talk offline and... <laughs> <laughs> 
What's it like for home? You mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I'm in the. I don't know. Do you know Jeff Brown? Yeah, I do. I do. So uh, yeah, I'm in the middle of building him a couple in my spare time, which uh, is not a lot. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, you're you're staying pretty busy with with Millsap even to this day. But talk to me a little bit about how you met Ronnie and 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 got into his band because you know, and I said this to you earlier, you know. Ronnie was one of those artists that, you know, everybody, I guess, immediately thinks country music. But you were telling me that, you know, country radio shied away from Ronnie in the early days because, you know, they had distortion on guitars. And that was, you know, well, real faux pas and stuff back then. Well, his his early hits, his early number ones were traditional country. Right. Uh, it was later on when things like uh, Stranger in My House came out um, that uh, the radio stations got, um, you know, a little wiggy with stuff like that because uh, his first number one hit was uh, Pure Love that uh, Eddie Rabbit wrote. Yeah. And so he was, you know, he was very traditional in his early hits, uh, but he started moving towards that crossover thing and and uh the the guitar solo that was distorted on stranger in my house <laughs> radio stations wouldn't play it at first um, <laughs> how far we've come rodney <laughs> i know it i know it um but uh as far as how i got with ronnie uh it's kind of funny i have to go back to when i was with the jeff allen band um the bass player in that band hoppy vaughn uh, and Jamie Brantley, who was Ronnie's guitar player and band leader, grew up together in Augusta. Well, when I was playing with Jeff Allen, Jamie was playing with Gary Morris. Okay. And when Gary was, was off the road, Jamie would come out and hear our band. And so I, I met Jamie that way, and he used to come out and hear the, the Jeff Allen band. Well, fast forward a few years, I'm with the Whites, and... um we're playing the Opry and I knew Millsap was going to be on the Opry and, and I got done playing my couple of songs and Jamie was standing there. And so we kind of reconnected and he was playing with Ronnie at that time, uh, which I didn't know. So that was kind of cool. I saw Jamie again. Well, it wasn't long after that. Um, I was out on the road with the whites, um, up in Pennsylvania and, um, Judy, my wife, she tracked me down at the hotel that we were at, which was not easy to do, you know, pre-cell phone days. <laughs> right. And she said that Jamie Brantley needs you to call him right away. And so I got in touch with Jamie, and this was on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, Ronnie's longtime drummer, Alan Kerr, I guess he told Jamie that he was going to play that weekend and then he was going to be gone for six weeks. And, um, so Jamie thought about me and he gave me a call and wanted to know if I would be available for six weeks. Well, the whites didn't have any dates. All we were doing was the Opry. And so I could, you know, I could take off and do that. So I talked with Jamie on a Saturday. I got in town Sunday morning. And he gave me a book full of cassettes of the show. And I had Sunday and part of Monday morning to listen to that. And I rehearsed with him, one of the keyboard players and the bass player, on Monday. And we left Tuesday. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, and I mean, I still hadn't, and I still hadn't played with Ronnie yet. So, was your first interaction with Ronnie live on stage? It was at Soundcheck. Okay. Wow, man. Um, and we went to Soundcheck, and, and uh, Ronnie had a couple of, of medleys that he did that were, and Jamie told me, he said, that's the focus. You know, learn these medleys. Um, you know, the rest of the stuff, you're probably familiar enough with the songs. We can get through them. But uh, he said, focus on those medleys. And so at uh, sound check. And Jamie had also told me, he says, now this would be no reflection on you or your playing. He said, but Ronnie, he just may not be digging what, what he's, you know, what he's hearing up there. And that, we had three shows that week. He said, you'll play 
these three shows. And if, you know, Ronnie may come to me and say, uh, Jamie, you need to find me somebody else for the, for the next run. Oh, wow. And no, so no pressure. Well, you couldn't have stuck a hat pin in my butt. I'm not, <laughs> you know, that, you know, when that show started, but we, we did, uh, we ran a few things at soundcheck and, and then, uh, Ronnie called Jamie over to the piano and I was thinking, well, Ronnie's not digging it, and he's already telling Jamie to try to line somebody up for next week. And they <laughs> talked for a minute, and Jamie stood up, and he said, no, Ronnie, he's white. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's, that may be the greatest story ever told on the drum shuffle right there. No, he's he's a white guy. That's so funny. So you so, uh, you brought your your funk and your Motown thing to to Ronnie's band and he dug it. I, well, I just brought whatever it is I do and and uh, and he was okay with it and so I I hung on for the for the six weeks and uh, the the last thing that we did with him was uh, one of the old Nashville Now tapings with Ralph Emery. Oh yeah, sure, that was a great show. And he called me out to the bus to. Uh, talk to me after the thing and i and i thought okay he's um he's gonna say thanks appreciate it and and everything like that well he offered me the gig oh wow yeah and i was i felt a little weird about it i, I never pushed for it i never you know didn't try to get the gig or anything like that um but he offered it to me and and i really wanted to do it i wanted to keep doing it and so i took it and have basically been there ever since. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think, I think Ronnie is one of those just American treasures as an artist, you know, because look, you know, you were talking about, you had a day and a half basically to go through, you know, cassettes. First of all, there's (laughs) for, for you young listeners that don't know the pain of rewinding and fast forwarding (laughs) through cassette tapes. There's, you know, there, there's a pain point there. It's not, you can't just skip to the next track or whatever. So, but you know, he had a massive, massive catalog of songs that you had to get under your belt pretty quick. So I'd imagine you didn't get a lot of sleep those couple of days. Well, I was definitely reviewing stuff and, and Jamie was working with me, um, you know, on stuff and, and we would go over things at sound check. Uh, Ronnie is never, even back then, he was never one that, that liked to rehearse much himself. And, he always would depend on the band to just learn it and we might run it at sound check and, and you know, if there was something new he wanted to put in now back then, um, Ronnie's show of course consisted of, of a lot of hit records, but he did some other things too. Um, the, they did like a, a doo-wop vocal thing, which I was not involved in, um, where they would uh, go up front, and do that. And, and Ronnie was very mobile back then. And his stage was always set up exactly the same. He had a DX seven that was down front that he could get up on his own from the piano and walk to. And, and, uh, so he had several locations on the stage that he would move to on his own. And, um, and he had a, one of the medleys that he did, one of them was a hits medley of, you know, it had about, I don't know, seven or eight, uh, pieces of, of eight number one hits on all into like a 12 minute medley. <laughs> wow. And then he had a, he had another one that, that he called the piano man medley, which was not any of his music, but it would, it featured like Fats Domino and little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and things like that. And, um, the first show that I ever did with Ronnie, of course I was prepared for the piano man thing. But the last song on there is this uh, rocked-out version of Lucille. And uh, one thing I wasn't expecting is that uh, on the last song there on Lucille, he stands up and kicks his piano bench back and pulls himself up into the to his grand piano. He's standing in his grand piano 
getting the crowd whipped up and then jumps out of it backwards to the floor. <laughs> okay. I, and I'm going, I, yeah. the blind guy just jumped out of the piano. You, and I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Your your jaw was, uh, was unhinged at that point, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it was every night. You know, he did it every night. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, it, talk to me a little bit about and I think you'll have an interesting perspective on this, but talk to me a little bit about, you know, obviously a lot of those hits had been recorded before your time in the band, all that good stuff. How do you serve those songs? Do you do you stick exactly to what was recorded by some of those, you know, legendary Nashville drummers or do you bring your own flavor to it or is it a little bit of both? Well, I think it's it's a little bit of that, and also um, since I came in on such short notice, um, I was more doing what the previous drummer Alan had done. Okay, I, I'm, I made my focus wanting to make Ronnie comfortable up there, so I I kind of stuck as close as I could to what uh, what was on those tapes. Um, I didn't spend any time really listening to the original recordings. I see. Okay. Of, of those things, but there were there were some things like um, "Stranger in My House" and and some things where I would notice that Ronnie would do a particular rhythmic thing on the piano, and the next time around, I might jump on top of it with him, and. Um, and things like that would evolve into part of the song. The bass player would, would, you know, he would hear that and do it also. So there's some, some of our songs um, that, you know, of course we've been doing forever, um, evolved into a little bit. You know, the arrangement is the same, but there's some, some kicks and punches and stuff like that that, um, you know, weren't on the record and and uh, weren't on, you know, the the tapes that I listened to. So he was open to, um, you know, you playing around with it up there a little bit. Yeah. So it's it's evolved over time. I mean, as as all musicians do, and and you know, songs that are you know forty years old in some cases, you know, they they do tend to evolve. I just didn't know how open you know Ronnie would be to those kinds of things. And um, I, you know, I think it's it's interesting when you see these artists that have been around as long as Ronnie. Um, you know, and I haven't seen you guys for, oh gosh, I mean, it's been a number of years, but I caught a show down in Somerset where my brother lives. You guys were doing a show down there. Um, and and I caught that it was a, it was an outdoor thing. I can't remember exactly what it was for, but you know, what struck me was, man, Millsap has got it still to this day. I mean, he, you know, you talked about his mobility earlier I mean, it hasn't trailed off at all. His voice and his playing is exactly the same as it ever was. It's, um, yeah, he's maintained a pretty high level um, with all of that. He turned 76 this year. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm going, I'm frankly surprised that we're still out there sometimes. (laughs) He's still doing this, but. Uh, there's still a demand for him, um, and and he can still sell out the, you know, the smaller venues. We're certainly not a a, a festival act anymore, or anything like that. But um, uh, I enjoy playing the small theaters and and the casinos and and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, Ronnie still he's still singing at a at a, at a high level. Yeah, I mean it's it's just amazing to me, and you know, I mean when when you kind of think about. Seriously, and I'm imploring my listeners, just go out to YouTube or whatever, you know, however you get your music, Spotify, whatever, and just type in Ronnie Millsap. I think, you know, when you go back and refresh yourself with everything he's done, you can't help but have just a little bit of awe about you because, I mean, he's just had a legendary career. Yeah, he had uh, 40 number one hits and... Man, um, I think uh, 
something I was surprised at. We did a show several years ago in Oklahoma, and a radio uh, DJ in, you know, introduced the show. And um, he said something in his introduction that I wasn't aware of, but Ronnie um, was on the – he was in, in Billboard – he had he was number seven, I think, in the all time number one hits for any genre. Wow. So you had like George Strait and, and Conway Twitty, which you know, both country, but then you'd have Michael Jackson and Madonna and people like that. And there there was Ronnie at number seven. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's just amazing to me. And you know, I I think the appeal to Ronnie, you know, and again, I think people immediately identify him with, with country, but, you know, you played in a, you know, very traditional country band, the whites, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, you know, early rock and roll influence in, in your all's band. Uh, there's a lot of Motown influence. Uh, talk to me about that a little bit. Do you, you know, do you consciously go into each gig saying, okay, I got to get my Motown groove going here or, or vice versa? Or do you, is it just second nature now at this point? I don't really think about it now. We, you know, we, we do basically the same show we've done for, for several years. And, uh, I don't really think about it a whole lot. Um, we're, you know, we still get a variety of stuff. We, we do the first song out of the gate is, Prisoner of the Highway, which is probably, until we get the stranger in my house, is the loudest thing we'll do all night. And um, I don't know. You just try, you, you know you you serve the song for the for the genre that it's in. Yeah. Um, at the t- you know whatever way it comes up, and uh, Ronnie, st- you know he's got such a huge variety of influences that. Um, you know, we get to we get to hit on a lot of stuff, even though in just in a seventy-five minute show. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's got to be a fun gig for a drummer. Um, Rodney, what else do you have going on? I mean, obviously, you said you've you've worked a day job. You know, all these years. You know, you, you're out on the road with Ronnie quite a bit. Are you giving any lessons? Are you doing sessions? What else do you have going on besides you know the day job and and being a married man and, and working with, with Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> well, playing wise, not a whole lot. Uh, I, I will do a session if I get called. Uh, I'm not, um, you know, one of the call guys, uh, for that sort of thing. Um, but I, with the day job and, and being gone most weekends, I just, I don't actively seek out a whole lot of it these days. I'm not teaching any lessons. Um, but my old friend Jeff Allen that I played in the rock band with has been playing uh, in recent years, and he calls me uh, to sub occasionally. And if I'm if I'm not booked with Ronnie, I'll go do that. I've just did a couple of gigs with him recently, and uh, those are a lot of fun to get out there and and bang it out a little bit. Sure, yeah, and and that's reliving some glory days too. You know, to to keep that connection all these years. You know, that's, that, it just sounds like a really good time. Um, well, Rodney, as we get close to the end of our interview here, I want to be respectful of your time. One of the things that we always do on the show is we always ask folks for a good piece of advice. And, you know, our crowd is going to be, you know, 98% drummers. The other 2% are just curious musical onlookers. So, right. so, so we ask for, you know, a good piece of advice for other musicians that they can take out there in, in their day-to-day lives. But, you know, you've, you've had a really, you know, great career with several different artists. You know, what have you learned over the years that we can all use? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, like I said earlier, I didn't come to town with any kind of a plan, but I had the good fortune of, of, um, playing a wide variety of music growing up. You know, I played in rock bands cause you know, that's what I liked. Um, I played in country bands. Uh, it was fun. Um, and there was a, a little bit of money involved <laughs> at a young age. Um, you know, I did the school band thing, you know, learned how to read. I, I played in our high school jazz ensemble. Um, I played in the pit orchestras in, in, uh, in high school for the school musicals and the marching band and, 
and I did the fife and drum thing. I mean, I just lived with sticks in my hand back then. So for, you know, any musician, I think being uh, versatile and not being locked into one style uh, will go a, a long way. And uh, in, in Nashville especially, um, there are so many great players in town and some get, sometimes there may be a guy that's better than you that's got a gig, but he can't keep the gig because he can't ride the bus. <laughs> that has been discussed on this show many, many times. It's it's not about the two hours on stage. It's about the 22 hours in the metal tube. <laughs> I mean, I, ca- I can't stress that enough of uh, of that sort of thing. I mean, you can come to town with all the licks and all of that kind of stuff, but you know, knowing where to, knowing where to play it, you know, being the good player and everything like that. But if you're, if you're not a good hang, um, um, it, it'll be, it'll be over quickly for you. Yeah. Well, and obviously you're a pretty good hang because you've been with the same <laughs> legendary artist for 27 years. So Clearly, you're you're able to get along and play well with the other inmates on the <laughs> on the Millsap bus, right? Well, you just you, yeah, you just have to. I mean, we're it, it's a small it's a small group from when I first got with Ronnie. We had a you know Ronnie had a large band when I got with him. You know, three buses and a semi, and uh, and we're now to you know we're just one bus and a trailer, and Ronnie rides with us and. Um, it's just a, a family thing on there and you just, you just have to get along. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I don't know if that helps any young listeners out there, but, um, yeah, there's a lot of guys here that can play and do my part and, and probably do it better. But, you know, I've been able to get along and, and ride the bus and, and so I'm still here. Uh, that's, that's fantastic advice. Um, Rodney, you know, as I said, when we first got on the phone, you know, it's it's amazing that we have so many, you know, friends and acquaintances in common that that we had never met until we did this. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to remedy that the next time I get to town, I'll, I'll look you up, we'll do coffee or whatever. But uh, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. You're welcome here anytime that you want to come on and talk shop. We'll have you back whenever your schedule will allow. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I was, you know, surprised when you asked me to do it. I'm always surprised when people ask me to do things like this. Well, but, you, uh, you shouldn't be. I mean, you, you seriously, you, we, we all know, you know, first of all, you don't get that gig unless you know what you're doing. And to keep a gig like that for so long, I mean, I think it's a testament to, to how you work and, and get the job done. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. And, um, and please do uh, contact me if you're coming to town for any length of time so we can get together. I, I will indeed. Rodney, I hope you have a great evening, and uh, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Enjoyed it. All right. See you now. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up Episode 75 of The Drum Shuffle. want to thank Rodney Edmondson for his time to come on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, what a great guy and a great interview there. Uh, just Really thankful that he took time out of his very busy schedule to come on the show. Um, As you know, this is our last episode before my summer hiatus. Um, So what's going on? My daughter is moving to North Carolina for uh, to, to start high school at a ballet conservatory. I have Summer Nam coming up that I'm going to be uh, going to and all kinds of shows of past guests, future guests that I'm going to be attending. So I am taking a few weeks off here. Uh, So please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. That way you will get the very first episode back uh, when I get done with my crazy summer plans. Uh, Right now, the plan is to have an episode back uh, at the first part of September or last part of August. So about six or seven weeks that I'm taking off here. So uh, I appreciate everybody's patience as I get all my stuff in order and get some great interviews lined up to bring to you guys at the end of summer. Uh, 
Of course, you can email us during that time. I will be answering every single email that I get. That address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the drumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, click on those social media links, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I will be keeping you guys posted on my summer shenanigans via those social media channels. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We simply cannot put this show together each and every week without all of you tuning in to listen. We appreciate it more than you will ever know. Be sure to share a link with a friend that helps us more than anything else you can possibly do. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.